let's take our Bibles, if you would, please, and open them to Philippians chapter 4. This evening, we are in the next to the last sermon in the series on Philippians. Now, this is a two-part message, so uh, there's two more, one more message uh, on this particular topic, and then we'll finish out the book in a couple of weeks. And tonight, we're talking about the postscript of Paul's letter that begins with verse number 20. These are the verses that follow that. He started the letter out with a salutation. He ends it with a salutation. And the salutation is to the saints of God. And that's what we're going to concentrate on tonight. It's that little six-letter word that is really so confusing to so many people. And this is about the saints. Uh, You may be kind to people, and sometimes you will say to them, well, you are such a saint. And that makes people feel good. And then there are other people who say, oh, I'm no saint. And they say that as if there's some kind of virtue in not being a saint. Well, we're going to look at this tonight. It's become somewhat of a common theme as we go through Paul's epistles because he uses this word so frequently. It seems to be the favorite word that Paul uses to uh, denote the people of God. Now, we look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. I'm not going to ask you to stand tonight. We'll just go right on with the reading. But uh, verse number 21 and 22 says, Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you, and all the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. As we look at those two verses, I believe that we first of all need to be reminded of the sense of community that believers had in the time of Paul. You didn't have 165 different denominations uh, back in those days, and there wasn't a, a great disparity of different Bible interpretations. And so the many things that we have in churches today that divide us and prevent our fellowship were simply not present at the time of Paul. Now, in the many centuries since Uh, the beginning of the Christian church, there have been many things that have added to Scripture, uh, many things that have also been taken away from the Word of God. And from every, uh, with every departure of the profound truths of God's Word, there's always a wedge that develops between competing Christian groups. Now, the simplicity of the gospel is really what knitted the people together in Paul's time. And so when Paul wrote from one place to Christians in another place, the ones that he was writing to were pretty much of the same stripe as the, as the people were at the place that he was writing from. Now, there are some people who say, well, what we need to do about this is try to correct that, and let's just strip away all of the competing interpretations of Scripture, and let's just do this. Let's just get back to the gospel itself. Let's deliver just a clear, simple message of the gospel of Christ, and let all these other doctrines go, and let's just don't talk about those. Now, that may sound good to a lot of people, but what it, really what it does, it would cause us to abandon the deeper study of God's Word. Now, recently, I was reading an article in one of the Baptist papers over the argument that there is about doctrines of grace and how that divides people. And the position of the person who was writing the article said that what we need to do is just forget about all of that. Let's don't talk about those things, and let's just go out and we'll win souls for Jesus. Well, that sounds good in one sense, and I'm all for that. But what are you going to do with all the souls that you win to Jesus? I mean, are you going to keep them in the dark about the rest of the doctrines of God's Word? Uh, And unfortunately, that's what many churches have done today. uh, Because when you begin to evaluate what Baptists believe today compared to what we believed 100 years ago, and uh, it's not the same. It's quite different. 
And the churches in Paul's day were quite a bit different from Baptist churches today. And that's because the philosophy that has been developed in a lot of churches is that you don't talk about these other doctrines. Don't, don't bother with those kinds of things. And so the products of people who come out of those churches are preachers who tell you stories when they preach and you get topical messages and those types of things. And it's really not much more than what uh, that lady, if you remember, I was reading uh, one night uh, uh, in, in the message about the lady who was writing to Dr. C.D. Uh, Cole, and she called the messages that preachers were preaching in her time, and that was 50 years ago, she said they were messages for snack bar Christians. And so there are a lot of different things that do divide us today, and they prevent us from just going merrily along and and joining up and supporting everybody who says that they are Christian. Now, a a few days ago, it's probably been three weeks or so ago, I was uh, speaking with Jason Guritz, and uh, we were talking about the difficulty that he was having in finding a good church in, in his area. And he said something to the effect of this. He said, the dearth of good churches in North Carolina and South Carolina is, is just as bad as it is in California. And uh, there are many, many more churches to choose from when you get into the South and other parts of the country. But he said the problem is that so many of these churches have gone to generic Christianity that it really doesn't matter what you believe. All the churches will join together and fellowship with one another and really make no differences about their doctrine. Well, for sure, there was a sense of community among the saints in Paul's time. But whenever there was someone or a group of people that went into apostasy, that's when the community of Christians excluded those people that they could not correct with the truth. And so by doing that, that kept the pure stream of doctrinal truth pure. It kept it a pure stream. And so the church has survived for all of these centuries because there was no compromise of the truth. But now we find that today that the guardians of the truth have begun to let the guard down. And so you can travel all across the United States, and it's very, very difficult to locate a good Bible-believing church anymore, a church that still stands on New Testament doctrine. And so that great change of Baptist theology from the inception of the Baptist church right here in America is is, uh, really... Uh, has shown up with the changes of it has shown up in the present day because of the compromises that have been made over the doctrines of God's word. Now I'm going to talk a little bit more about that aspect when we get into the second part of this message next week. But for now, we want to just look at some uh, talk about a, a, a positive side of the use of the word saints as Paul speaks of saints. Now, first of all, we're look we want to look at the designation. As saints. Now, this is a very confusing term to many people, and, and they have a very mixed-up idea about what a saint is. Now, Paul used the word freely throughout his writings, and it was, again, one of his favorite designations for the people of God. But the ignorance of the term, I mean, why people are so confused about this is not hard to trace. It's not hard to figure out. It's no mystery why people don't understand what the word saint means. Now, we can go back uh, in history to... Uh, to the, uh, I guess where we want to start is the difficulty of obtaining scripture for personal reading. 
And as you know, people back in the first century and, and for many centuries after that did not have the availability of the Word of God like we have today. So people wouldn't own a copy of the Bible. So what they depended upon was for people in the synagogues or, or at that time, of course, in, later on in the churches, they depended on those who had copies of the Word of God to teach them, to tell them the truth. And when they would preach, they would give the sense of the meaning of the Scriptures as they preached. And that's really what preaching is all about. I mean, that's what, especially what expository preaching is about. You preach the message, you use the Word of God, and you give the sense of the reading, give the sense of the passage as you go on through the sermon. Now, as long as you have faithful Bible teachers, uh, it's not really a problem. I mean, if other people don't have copies of the Bible like they didn't have then, it wasn't so much of a problem when you have a faithful Bible teacher. But what do you do when the teachers stop being faithful to the Word of God and you don't have a copy of the Word of God to read and you can't check it out? What happens then? Well, uh, the, the truth of the Word gets skewed. The public really doesn't know what the Word of God actually says. They don't know the difference between what's right and what's wrong because they don't own their own copy of God's Word. Now, that is exactly what happened in Jesus' time. Uh, they were, uh, Jesus faced the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and the people listened to their teachings. And when they heard them, they expected that they were telling them the truth. And so they didn't have the real sense of the meaning of the Word of God. Uh, they didn't know that the scribes and the Pharisees had a, had a totally different agenda than God had. And so they became very confused, and Scripture interpretation became perverted. And that's why we find Christ preaching that Sermon on the Mount and explaining all these perversions of the scribes and Pharisees. Well, the very same thing happened after the church began. After many, many years of teachers giving wrong interpretations of Scripture, we have the rise of the greatest apostate church of all, which I think the book of Revelation calls... Uh, I think this is what is identified as the mother of all harlots and the abomination of the earth. And that is the Roman Catholic Church. And for centuries, they had been perverting Scripture. People didn't have their own copies of the Scripture, so that when the printing press was invented and the Scriptures were uh, translated into the common vernacular of the people, Rome very strenuously resisted that. John Wycliffe in the 14th century was the first one to give English people a Bible that they could read and understand. And for that, Rome persecuted him. Now, Wycliffe actually died a natural death, but after he died, the Pope commanded that his bones were to be dug up and burned, and they threw the ashes into the river. So Rome very strenuously resisted that people should have a Bible to read in their own language because they, they knew that as soon as people got the Bible that they would begin to see all the perversions that they had put out there. And they begin to compare Scripture uh, with what they had been told and, and uh, people would find out that they hadn't been told the truth. Well, Rome has a way of correcting that. Uh, they don't still don't encourage Bible reading, but people do have Bibles and you can read it. And so what they say now is that you can't interpret the Bible on your own. You need the magisterium to, to interpret the Bible for you. That means the leaders of the church, who actually in their mind is the church. The leaders are the church, and you need them to interpret Scripture for you because you don't have the ability on your own. And so it's after those many, many years of abuse that many people became confused about the word saints. Now, I would call uh, this perversion of Roman Catholicism concerning saints the statue level. 
Because that's what many people think of whenever they think of a saint. When they think of saints, they think of statues. They've been to church, and they've seen the statues that are everywhere. And these statues are idols of dead people. And so to them, a saint is an idol, or it's a statue. One of the most enlightening trips that I ever took in all my life was when I went to uh, visit Rome, uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Uh, Most of you that have been to Europe, you're aware that just about everybody that goes makes some kind of trip to the cathedrals that are there. I mean, the old old churches, and, and I did that. I mean, I really did enjoy looking at all of these old churches that were there. Now, I, uh, of course, grew up in a Baptist household around Baptist people. The majority of the people that are all around me were Baptists. And uh, I knew about Roman Catholicism, and I'd been teaching about Roman Catholicism for years, but I never ha- had that really upfront personal contact with it. I mean, I-, I hadn't gone into Roman Catholic churches, and I didn't see everything that was going on there. So when I was in Europe, that was really my first opportunity to do that. So we went in to visit uh, these different cathedrals. And that kind of a- was an eye-opener to me. But none of that prepared me, really, for what it was like when you got into St. Peter's Basilica. Because St. Peter's is a bastion of idolatry. I mean, there are hundreds of idols in that place. There are idols to all the saints. There are idols to dead popes. And and people come in there, and they bow down, and they cross themselves, and they pray to all these idols, and they worship those things. And And I've told you a couple of times before about the statue that they have there of Peter. And people come by the statue and they rub the toe to get a blessing. Rub the toe of the statue. And there's so many people that file by that that they've worn the statue, the toe of that statue down with just a sliver. Now, I don't know what they do. Maybe they have somebody come in and repair that and build the toe back up again so it can get rubbed back down again. And I don't know how many times they have to do that, but this is the kind of thing that people are thinking about when you use the word saint. They, they got the idea in their mind that it's a statue. It's some dead guy, and that's what a saint is to them. And so the Roman Catholics had this whole process of sainthood. I mean, somehow they've determined that there are certain people that are better than the rest, and they have all this criteria that they go by, and, and a person has to have shown some particular uh, thing in his life that he's above, uh, I guess, a cut above all the rest. He must have performed some miracles, some verifiable, verifiable miracles in their mind. And then after they get all that assembled, they have a, a committee, and the, the committee of the church comes together, and they examine all the evidence, and if it's to their liking, then they vote that person into sainthood. And then from there, the saint gets a statue. So they get made into an idol, and all of these gullible people, they come around, and they pray to that statue, to that idol, to get friends out of purgatory or to get some kind of a special blessing out of it. And so thus, you have all the confusion about what a saint is. So the people, the problem here is that people have been kept in the dark about the Word of God. So they think about statues when you say saint, wood, uh, wood and stone, and even plastic ones are their saints. Now, for all of that, there's not one word in all of the scriptures. There's not one word or any hint that says that that is what a saint is. In fact, the Bible is so dead set against idols that the very first command that God gave was you shouldn't have any other gods. You're not to make any idols, not to make any graven images. You're not to worship them, bow down to them, pray to them, or do anything else with an idol. God strictly forbids that. And so when Paul wrote in the salutation to this letter in 
chapter 1 and verse number 1, and then in the end, in chapter 4, verses 21 and 22, and he uses the word saint, he has nothing in mind what people call saints today. It's a completely different thing. So when we think about saints, what do we think about? I mean, do we think on the statue level? No, we think on the spiritual level, a spiritual level. Now, saints are not those that are embedded in stone. The saints are the people of God. They're all born-again believers, everyone who's trusted Christ as Savior. Now, Paul had witnessed to many different people from all different walks of life, and when they trusted Christ, those people became saints. And so Paul was surrounded by saints. When he wrote this letter, he had many brethren, and he won to Christ, and they were saints. Uh, He mentions here those who were part of Caesar's household, and they were people that got saved right there in the Roman palace, and they were saints. And all the people that Paul was writing to, when they received this letter and they got it, they knew he was talking about, they were the saints. And so we look at Paul's letters, and we see that he's always talking about saints. Most of the time, he's talking about living saints. Now, I don't even know if it's possible. Maybe some of you that have a Catholic background, you might inform me on this. I don't think that it's possible to have a living saint in the Roman Catholic Church. I don't think that's possible. Usually, uh, I think all the time, just about, the saints have been dead for a long, long, long time before they ever get sainthood. Now, I know there was some talk um, there, there's some talk, and, and that's still going on, I think, about uh, making Mother Teresa a saint. And so she may not have to be dead a long time, and they put her on the fast track to sainthood. I don't know how they do that, but somehow they're going to get her there uh, quicker than the rest. So when Paul writes about this, of course, he's not talking about that. He's talking about living saints, the people of God. There are dead saints, too. Those are the ones that are in heaven. And, uh, but the Bible doesn't say anything about praying to them. The Bible of course, never says anything like that. So saints are people who have been revived in their spirit and they're people that have been made alive unto God. And so Paul uses the term over and over again to refer to people who have been born again. Now, he has another designation. We find this in the scripture. That's brother and sister. We call each other brother and sister, and that shows relationship there is between Christians. And when you use the word saint, what you're actually doing is referring to the peculiar spiritual nature of that person's calling. So if we wanted to change our terminology and we started, uh, instead of calling each other brother and sister, and we uh, started calling each other saint, like St. Dalton and and St. Gary and St. John here and and some of you others, that would be perfectly acceptable. That would be biblical because we're saints. So let's talk about that just a little bit, uh, about the calling on the spiritual level. What, what does it mean when we're called to be saints? Well, number two is the design for saints. Paul wrote in the salutation in Romans, he says, to all that be in Rome, the loved of God called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there he says, called to be saints. Now, that tells us that there is something very peculiar about the redeemed of God. They're called to be saints. Now, there's something more in that designation than, than just Mr. or Mrs., I mean, a title that you give to someone. There's really something more even than brother and sister. There is a design for the designation. So, if I'm going to call you saint, and I say, Saint Lino, 
Well, there is an expectation that goes along with that name. I mean, isn't there? I mean, when, when, if we started calling each other saint, don't you think there would be uh, certain expectations that would go along with it? And if you use that term out there uh, in the world, especially, and Christian people start addressing people as saints, you, you, you know that everybody is going to sit up and take notice of that. They're going to listen to that, and they're going to think that there are certain characteristics that you must have in order for you to be called a saint. Now, in the next message, I'm going to explain to you why it's possible that you can lower those expectations biblically and you can still maintain the designation. But for now, we want to think about that common usage of the term. It has certain expectations that go along with it. Paul's expectations were very high, and he insisted that the people of God should live by a high standard. Now, on the other hand, if you don't live up all the way to the standard, it doesn't take away the designation. Again, I'm going to explain that more next time. But the high expectation, there's a high expectation, and it's recognized by the very meaning of the term. Now, we have to be careful about our calling because of the meaning of the term. So first we see that the term means this. It means to be set apart from sin. Saint comes from a word that we recognize all throughout the Bible, and it's the word holy. And when you think about the word holy, where does your mind go? Well, it should go to God, because God is holy. The chief attribute of God is his holiness. There's no sin in God. God is uh, sacred. He's, he's purity. He's, he's blameless. And so those who are called to be saints are called to the holiness of God. Another word that's used in Scripture uh, to explain this is the word sanctified. I mean, they all come from the same term. Saint, sanctified, holy, all have the same root word. So a saint is someone who is sanctified. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctify you wholly. Now, notice the spelling of that word, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Now, that's not the same as H-O-L-Y. Holy means thoroughly, throughly, completely. So a saint, according to Paul in this scripture, is one who is to be blameless in his soul, his spirit, and his body. And so the expectation of a saint is that he's someone who lives on a higher plane than somebody who's not a saint. And so if we were to start calling people saints, people will sit up and take notice of it because they would expect that our lives reflect the character of God. And so they're going to be offended at the term, or at least what they know about the term, if there isn't something that's radically different about us. Now, there is the very reason that the Bible is always dealing with the issue of lifestyle. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and you're not your own? Now, I think most of you know the context of that statement. I preached through 1 Corinthians, and first, uh, that church at Corinth had a whole lot of problems. They weren't acting like saints. And so Paul just almost with exclaiming with surprise, Don't you know this? Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. He lives in you. Now, if that's so, if it's the temple of the Holy Ghost, then the argument of the passage is that anything that is defiling is not to be a part of a Christian's life. 
In the verse that was just previous to that, Paul said this. He said, flee fornication. And the idea was there not just fornication, but to flee all types of sin. Get away from sin. Get as far away from it as you possibly can. And he says also in 1 Thessalonians, abstain from all appearance of evil. And so over and over in the scriptures, we have these warnings about sin. And that's because sin does not reflect the righteous character of God. Another example that we have is in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And, of course, we can go on and on throughout the Bible, uh, many, many of these types of verses. And the Scriptures are teaching us that God demands holiness. And built in to that word holiness is the word saint. And so Paul says in that third verse that we just read, as becometh saints. So it's not becoming of a saint to be anything other than holy. So saints are designed to be holy people. And so we shouldn't wonder that the world would have a higher expectation. Don't wonder that they expect something different from you. And it may be that the world doesn't like us using the word saint because there's so many Christians that really don't act saintly. Now, the other side of that is, again, a more positive side, because while we are to abstain from sin, we are also to be actively engaged in the other part of this. And the other part of it, the meaning of the word saint, is to be set apart to service. Holiness conveys that anything that has come into the presence of God and becomes his is set apart to God. It becomes holy. Now, in the Old Testament, you know that there were certain vessels in the Old Testament that were sanctified, set apart, uh, vessels that they used in the worship, and those were holy vessels. Uh, You had things, well, the priests themselves, in fact, were holy. The clothes that they wore, their clothes were sanctified, and the priest had to have a certain clothing that he wore. All the garments uh, represented something, and so those were sanctified garments, things that were set aside for his service. And then all those vessels that they used, the gold and the silver vessels, the candlesticks, the snuff dishes, and and all of those different kinds of things. Now, when I said snuff dishes, I'm not talking about, I'm, I'm talking about candle snuffers is what I'm talking about. So um, uh, all of those different things, I mean, those, those were holy vessels uh, set apart for God's service. Now, I want you to turn, if you would, uh, to Daniel chapter 5 for just a minute. I want to show you something here that's peculiar about the nature of things that God has sanctified. Now, if you'll look in Daniel chapter 5, I want to start reading in verse number 1. And uh, you'll recognize the story here when we begin to read. Daniel chapter 5, verse number 1. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God which was at Jerusalem, And the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines drank in them. 
They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the thoughts or the joints of his loins rather were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. So Belshazzar thought that what he could do was he could take the Lord's sanctified vessels, those things that were used in the temple, and that he could make a mockery of them. Now, those things were not to be used by him. Those were vessels that had been consecrated to God, and so they were to be used only in the service of God. I mean, even a Levitical priest, he would not dare take one of God's vessels and use it for one of his own purposes. But Belshazzar... As a man who has had, a man who had no qualms about that, it didn't bother him. I mean, he let his, his concubines and, and these women that he ran around with, his old buddies that he drank with, and they took God's vessels out of the temple and they drank their wine and praised their gods while they were doing it. And the story tells us that God sent him a message, a very strange one. Uh, fingers of a man's hand appeared writing on a wall. And Belshazzar saw that, and he was scared to death at it. And the writing on the wall said that he'd been judged by God, and the kingdom was to be taken away from him. Now, in Paul's day, by the time you get to the Apostle Paul and after Christ had died, and in our day, we don't have those kinds of vessels. We don't consecrate drinking vessels. Now, Brother Dave brought me up a glass of water here just a minute ago, and I don't think that he prayed over it and said anything particular and consecrated that that glass of water before he brought it to me. We don't do those things. We don't have holy water that we sprinkle on things to make them holy. Those aren't the kinds of vessels that God uses today. Now, here is what God says about vessels. We are the ones that are set apart for God's service. So we are actually now God's vessels that are to be used. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we read here, it says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. And so if you get that first part right, that you're to be purged from your sin, separated from all of your sins, then you're ready for the second part. And that's to be a vessel used for the honor of God. That's what it actually means to be a saint. You're designed for that. Designed to be a vessel of holiness unto God, and you're set apart for God's service. Now we could go back to uh, some more familiar verses and and talk about them, and I'm not going to take time to read them now. But in Romans 8.29, the Scripture says there that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. In Ephesians 2.10, it says that we are Christ's workmanship, that have been created unto good works, and we are to walk in those works. Romans 12.1 and 2 says that we are to be living sacrifices, and we're, we're formed and transformed into those who prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then Paul says that is our reasonable service. In Galatians 4.19, he says that Christ is to be formed in us. And then listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 2 verse 5, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So a spiritual house, 
a holy priesthood, and that is exactly what saints are. Holy, acceptable unto God. And perhaps Jesus is the one who said it the best. He said in Matthew 5, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now there is the work of the saints. That's what we've been designed to do. From day number one, the day that you got saved, you were sanctified and set apart to God. And at that time, you became a holy vessel for God. And so now, every day of your life, you are to live like a saint. You're to live like someone who is going to shine for Christ and glorify God, clean up your life, clean up your act, and be a vessel, meet for the Master's use. Let me quote something to you uh, from John MacArthur I thought was pretty good. He says, One little boy said that saints are stained glass figures who block out the sunlight. And another answered him, No, saints are people who let the light shine through them. So saints are not some unknown persons that are immortalized in stone. They're not people that have been cut into a stained glass window. Saints are people just like you and me. They're people who have been called out. They've been drawn to the Father. They have been uh, saved by the blood of the everlasting Son of God. And we're called to be saints and we're sanctified. And we are to reflect that holy, righteous character of God. And we do that through all the works of righteousness that we do for him. So humanly speaking, I think that if Paul could have known what was going to happen, uh, how, how people would so misuse this word saint, and when they get all mixed up about it, and, and how a saint is supposed to live, that he might very well have taken a brand and just burned it into the skin of every convert that he made and tell them, you are a saint and don't you ever forget it. You live like God wants you to live because you have been set apart to service for God. Well, Paul, of course, didn't do that. But what he did do was he wrote some Holy Spirit-inspired words, and there are plenty, plenty of those words throughout the Bible. There is enough information in Scripture that when you pick up God's Word, it ought to be burned indelibly into your mind. You don't need the tattoo. You just need the Word of God burned into your mind what a saint is supposed to be and how a saint is supposed to act. So a saint is just as common as you and me, It's a person set apart from sin and set apart to service for our holy God. Now, let me wrap up this part of the message by by, uh, taking you back to verse number 20, where he starts the closing words. He says, Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, I have a hard time believing as I look through the Word of God that if these are Holy Spirit-inspired words, which I believe that they are, that they're not placed in the Bible in, in, a, in, in just any kind of a random order. Things are put in the Bible in their particular place because that is exactly where God wanted them to be. Glory to God, we notice, comes before calling somebody a saint. We are designed to glorify God. When you glorify God, that's when you can be called a saint. Now, you go back to chapter 1, and you find that, that Paul calls them saints, and immediately follows that up with these words, grace from God our Father. And in the end of this whole book, he says glory to God, and he follows that up with the word saints. So I think that tells us that there, there's a relationship between the two. The community of saints is, is circled around a pinpointed center, And at the very center is God's glory. I mean, everywhere you go in the Scripture, you're going to keep coming back to it over and over again, God's glory. You know, I have been amazed as I've been studying um, 
the, uh, the Lord's Prayer and breaking all of that down, how that every single phrase of that prayer keeps circling right back around. I mean, even the hour petitions that are in the prayer, all of them circle right back around to one purpose, to give glory to God. And how people miss that, how Christianity misses that and doesn't emphasize it, I simply don't understand. And I think this is what Paul is telling us. He uses that word saint because that's what we're designed for, to give all glory to God. And so what happens is when we abandon our doctrine and everybody just becomes a generic Christian who can live with just about what, you know, anything that anybody else does, and we move off of that center where we're looking only at the glory of God, that's when we cease to be a community that Paul is talking about. We cease to be the kind of people that Paul was writing to when he said, saints, salute every saint in Christ Jesus. So I encourage all of you, remember what you're designed for. There are expectations for you to live up to if you're going to be called a saint of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you tonight for your word and just for the opportunity that we have to be together tonight. And we thank you, Lord, that you have called us saints. You have set us apart. You've given us the opportunity that we can work for you. And we praise your name for that. And I pray, Lord, that every member of Briam Baptist Church would live it every day, that there is a calling that we have to be holy. We are saints of God, and may we live to that calling. So bless us, Lord, tonight, and again, thank you for the time we spend together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.